First Corinthians chapter 10. Yesterday in Washington, D.C., there was a big Christian event. And if you get a chance to go online and look at some videos and look at some pictures, it was huge. Just to make things clear for everybody, I I don't have the hang-ups that we used to have with the body of Christ. I mean, if you're born again, you're my brother or sister. We may have doctrinal differences. They may be big doctrinal differences, but you're still my brother or sister in Christ. Okay, so that's the end of the discussion on that one. And if we can get together shoulder to shoulder and beseech the Lord together. Hallelujah. Yeah. Think about it. Think about how God when God looks down upon his family, is he thinking, well, this person's a Trinitarian. This person. Do you want, do you see my point there? We're his children. And, and so I don't want to sound like I'm glossing over the differences, but I do recognize and we should all recognize that these are our brothers and sisters in Christ and we should stand with them, especially in what they were praying for yesterday. And it was awesome. It was really awesome. They were praying, you know, about the whole abortion lobby in this country, um, the horrible things that are done. They were praying for the people of this country and the leadership of this country. And it just went on and on and on. It was really something. And it just really blessed me. And, and throughout it all, God was getting the glory. Mostly, when I listen to people, it wasn't look at me how great I am. It's look at God. Look at God and look at Jesus Christ. So I wanted to share today on glory. We use the word a lot, glory. We use it mostly when we talk about, you know, the rapture. Now, we're going to be raptured up, and that is our glorification. You've heard that term before. We are glorified in Christ. Uh, but it's it's a much bigger word than that. And so I wanted to take a look at that. First Corinthians chapter 10, look in verse 31. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's a That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? That whatever you do, do it for God's glory. And I think this is a big distinguishing feature. It's motivation. Motivation. Um, you can take a believer and an unbeliever, put them side by side. They are doing the exact same job. One of them's doing it for self-glory, perhaps, or something else. The other one is doing it for God's glory. That's the only distinguishing feature. And we talk about rewards in heaven. Well, rewards come from this, that whatsoever we do, we do it for the glory of God. Now, when I talk about glory, what do I mean? Well, let's talk about that. So glory, from a basic definition, means brightness, a luster, a splendor, right? We talk about the glory of the sun or the glory of the moon. And the, the glory of the sun and the glory of the moon, these are two very different glories, right? The sun is radiating. It gives off light. It generates light. Okay? It has its own light, whereas the moon is illuminated. I heard that in, I think, either prayer or manifest. It was manifestations, I think. Yeah, today. About how the moon 
is illuminated by the sun. And so if you took away the the brightness and splendor of the sun, you would also take away the brightness and splendor of the moon. Okay, one is reliant, dependent upon the other. Um, Go to Second Peter, chapter one, Second Peter one, look in verse 16. It says we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It says, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And many of you will recognize this as a reference to the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's when the disciples had a vision. They saw the vision of Jesus talking with Moses. And there was this Shekinah glory, the brightness of it, right? The visible brightness of it. You know, it was Peter who wanted to build an altar. And what did God say? He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Hear ye him. But the point here was, is that here was Jesus and he was illuminated by God's glory, by God's glory. And we see this notion of illumination in a lot of, if you look into art back in the Middle Ages, this idea of the Shekinah glory. You know, you look at the mosaics or the paintings and they have that, you know, dish around their head. <laughs> and, and you know, we, we kind of laugh at it, but I, I understand what the artists were trying to display. And they were trying to display that there was this, this glory and that glory came from God and illuminated man. And that's very important today in our teaching, that it's God's light and he illuminates man. Okay? Another sense here is splendor and magnificence. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. Splendor and magnificence. You walk into, you know, a royal court and there's music playing and there's, you know, costumes and there's, Custom, you know, this whole sense of magnificence. It says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? That's a pretty interesting thought. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies in the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. Isn't that something? So this idea of splendor. And, you know, this is a very human thing, this idea of splendor. But, you know, God is pretty magnificent. Okay, so Luke chapter 2, and look at verse 6. It says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. This is Jesus. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So this is something that is physically perceptible, the Shekinah glory. Isn't that something? Verse 10. Well, before I move on, I want to make the point here. So this glory of the Lord that shined around about them, how did they react to it? They were terrified. Now, is God a terrifying God? Well, not intentionally, of course, but this illumination of God, this glory of God, what does it do? It reveals, you know, the sin 
the depravity in mankind. And people are terrified by this, this idea, you know, that when you are in the presence of God and, you know, of course, this is just how things work. Right. I think this is one of the big reasons that people hate God and hate Christ as much as they do, because Christ and God expose the sin. Verse 10, it says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior is has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. Now, we see that, and then, of course, we see the uh, contrast of that, which is the false splendor of mankind. Go to Matthew chapter 6 again. Matthew 6. And look in verse 1. It says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen of them. You know, I read a, and we'll read it in a little bit, but I read this verse during study night last week, and it was Matthew chapter uh, 23, and it was this whole idea of being seen of others, that my glory, quote-unquote, is the glory that is bestowed upon me by the admiration of my fellow beings, and how false that is. It says, if you do... You will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they will receive their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. You know, I talked about last week when we were talking about uh, the truth. Um, I talked about self-testimony. How people like to brag on themselves and to boast. And that is just not part of what and who we are as Christians. Our lives are all about God and Jesus Christ. And we're not about self-glory. The splendor of mankind. Look at me. Look at the great works that I'm doing. The honor, the praise, the fame, the renown, the celebrity of mankind. The praise that's ascribed to a good work. That's just not about what we are. Look in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. And look in verse 5. It says, everything they do is done for men to see. This is talking about the Pharisees. Jesus is in the process of confronting these men. He says they make their phylacteries, those are the borders of the garments, they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, And you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. I love that. The greatest among you will be your servant. Is the servant going around saying, look at me? No, no. The servant is too busy doing what? Serving. Go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. 
And I'm kind of hitting on the negative side of this, you know, the false glory, because when we look around in our culture, that's just about all we see, isn't it? And we as Christians ought to be living in stark contrast to that. We should be known by our humbleness and humility that here we are, a people of light and power that God has bestowed upon us, but we don't go around advertising it as such. When people talk to us about how great we are, we're too busy redirecting that praise where? To God and Christ. That's exactly right. That's what it's all about. John chapter 12, look in verse 37. It says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Isn't that something? <laughs> I mean, I think that's comforting in a way. You know, how many times have you gone out and just laid out the truth to somebody, you spoke the truth to them, and they didn't believe? And you're like, what, is it me? You know, did I do something wrong? And it's just the fact that there are people who just won't believe. Verse 38, this is to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has arm of the law, the Lord, been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. So it says that God did this deadening, right, this blinding, this deadening. Well, in a sense, he did. He set the standard, and when they violated the standard, the result of that was blindness and deadening. And so when we look out into the world and we look at the, you know, the great pomp and circumstance of the natural men, the unbelievers, the anti-God folks, they're dead on the inside and they're blinded. That's what the scripture says. It's interesting here, too, that they don't see with their eyes. They don't feel with their hearts so that they could turn. They could repent and they could be healed. That's the requirement. So when we go out and we speak the word to people, we're looking for those who will turn, who are open to God's redirection. Verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus's glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And this, I mean, if we stand against any ministries, it's a ministry that has this toxic environment. That people are afraid to praise God because they're afraid of their leadership. Does that make sense to everybody? And I have been with an outfit like that. Those are the people that we should be adamantly standing against. As people is where the leadership, a church where the leadership is, um, you know, and is contradicting the believer who wants to just praise God with all his heart and soul, right? So this idea of glory also talks about divine perfection, divine perfection. Go to Psalm chapter 19, Psalm 19. I love this word glory. It's just such a great word. So Psalm chapter 19, look in verse 1. It says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the stars, the moon, the heavens, right? Everything. I had this conversation with uh, the husband of one of my cousins. And he's a great guy. And uh, we had stayed up 
one night and having a few drinks and, um, you know, we got into talking about the Bible and, you know, he kept saying, prove God. And I said, well, I can't prove God. He, he kept coming back to it. Prove God. Prove God. Anyway, he's a smoker and his wife didn't want him smoking in the house. So she would she would tell him to go outside. So we went outside and he was smoking a cigarette. And so we're standing outside and he said it again. Prove God. Well, it was a beautiful night and the stars were out <laughs> and it was such a great time. I will always remember this. I pointed up and I said, God. He said, I'm not going to let you get away with that. And I said, well, you're going to have to <laughs> because it's true. I can't prove God to you. He proves himself. This is the glory of the Lord. And all we can do is behold it, right? That's all we can do. Verse 2, day after day, they, meaning the heavens, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. That means that the little Chinaman who is, maybe that's not politically correct, but the Chinese person living in, in China who looks up at the stars, he's saying, seeing the same stars as the, you know, the person who lives in Belarus who's looking up at the stars. Those are the same stars as somebody who's living in, you know, New Mexico in America. That is the same stars. That there's no voice, there's no language where the stars aren't speaking. And what are the stars saying? They're declaring the glory of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? It says in verse 4, their voice goes out into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. In the heavens he pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth for, from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Isn't that great? And that's the beautiful thing. You know, you can have two people. One person looks at the heavens and says, that's God. And another person looks at the heavens and says, yeah, we got satellites up there who are, you know, flying around. And isn't that awesome? And, you know, that constellation is pretty cool and that, you know, it all came from a big bang. You know, people get different things out of out of situations because of where they're coming from. We should be able to see the glory of the Lord. The glory also means the utter joy of heaven prepared for the children of God. It's like a celestial bliss, celestial bliss. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 73 says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, God, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you take me into glory, glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Isn't that something? I got goosebumps from that. That's excellent. So in in, uh, scripture, Glory also means the divine presence. I think about when, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, when Eli, the, uh, the prophet, you know, his two sons had, had taken the Ark of the Covenant with them in the battle and the two sons were killed. And, uh, then, and the Ark of the Covenant was lost to the Philistines. And, and so when the word came back to Eli, he fell backwards and, and was killed, right? He, he, he broke his neck. Uh, he was a pretty large man. 
and his daughter-in-law gave birth to a son and named his uh, this son Ichabod. And the name means the glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed. And it was in reference to the loss of the Ark of the Covenant. And so it was this idea of God's divine presence, that this glory that had been upon Israel was now lost. But the word glory is also used in the sense of the pride of nations in the Bible, the pride of nations. Isaiah talks about Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians pride and how it will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. So that was dealing with Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Uh, Daniel talks about how Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his mind was hardened with pride and he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him, right? This idea of glory. Go to Acts chapter 14, Acts 14. And this is when the people were trying to, uh, you know, worship Barnabas and Paul because they had done some miraculous feat. And, you know, Barnabas and Paul are trying to, don't, don't be putting that on us. This doesn't come from us. Remember earlier when Peter and John had gone up and the people were like, oh, you know, you're awesome. And they said, you know, don't do this. This doesn't come to us. This goes to God. Well, they were doing it here. And it says in verse 15, it says, men, why are you doing this? We, too, are only men, only men. I think that's appropriate here, isn't it? You know, mankind loves the praise and the adoration. They love it. You know, I talked about, you know, Shakespeare, you know, what a work is man, you know, that in that he is like the angels. (laughs) Uh, Clearly. Shakespeare hasn't hadn't been reading his Bible too much because the Bible doesn't bear that testimony of mankind at all. It goes on and says, we, too, are only men human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, but he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Isn't that something? And it's this tendency, it's still here today, of men worshiping men. You know, I think of Jesus and how Jesus said, you know, instead of Jesus, that he had no need that anybody testify to him about man, for he knew what was in man and what was in mankind, a fallen heart. Go to Exodus chapter 33. So we're going to look at something here. This is Moses and Moses standing before God and seeking to see the glory of God. I love this record. So Exodus 33, look in verse 7. It says, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And the word meeting there, of course, is significant here because it's the, it's where Moses would go to meet with the Lord, right? It says anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, a pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. Entrance. 
while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Isn't that wonderful? I love that. And what does that connect? The idea here is is that it means intimacy. And I just think about what we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what intimacy that Moses had with God, we can have more if we choose to. And then it goes on to say Moses would return to the camp, but his young aides, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I can know you and continue to find favor with you. Isn't that wonderful? Teach me your ways. You know, it says in another place in the Bible that God showed his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. And that was a big distinguishing point here was that God revealed his ways to Moses. The, you know, the, the whys and the wherefores of why he did what he did. And, you know, the, that's true for us. You know, it's one thing to be a, a church attending um, Christian who goes to church and, you know, out of duty and does what he's supposed to do. And then there are those who just seek to know the Lord's ways. I want to be one of the latter. Yeah, let me read that over verse 13. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. That's a big deal, I think. Right. There are churches throughout this country, unfortunately, that, you know, whether God is with them or not, it's kind of secondary. <laughs> that they go off and do their own thing. Well, that's not the way it's supposed to work. The idea here is is that if the Lord is not with you as a church, you ought to shut down or get it right, figure out what it is. But there are too many churches in this land that are operating as if they were, you know, sanctioned by God, and they are not. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me And with your people, unless you go with us. That's a great question. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? That's that's it right there. It's God's presence. It's God's glory. God's mark of approval, which he will make sure people see. That's what distinguishes us from everybody else. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. Isn't that awesome? Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord or Yahweh in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me 
where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will, I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must never be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first one, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablet, which you broke. Does everybody remember what happened in that instance? Remember he went up there and he got the Ten Commandments and then he came down and, you know, the people were eating and drinking and rose up to play and they had the calf and in a fit of anger, uh, Moses threw the tablets down and they broke. So this is the second time and God's doing the writing now. God's doing the writing. So, uh, it says, be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there at the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first one and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down from the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name Yahweh, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Yahweh, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Isn't that wonderful? So that's the glory of the Lord and and uh, God revealing that glory to a man, that glory to a man, and that's so important. And that's a prayer that we should be praying to God. God, show me your glory. A lot of times we think, well, you know, Moses was a, a rock star, and who am I? Well, you're a child of God. <laughs> you're a child of God. It doesn't get any better than that. God will show you his glory if you but ask. Go to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. So this is talking about mankind. Mankind. You know, humanity throughout the world. It says in verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, what did they do? They failed to glorify him as God, and they didn't give thanks. Isn't that something? And this is what happens. This blindness that we talked about earlier. This hardness that they failed to glorify God, they were not thankful, but their thinking became futile. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, the vanity, right, the emptiness, the worthlessness, that their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So that was the exchange, or is the exchange, that, you know, behold the glory of the Lord. 
You know, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. He never left himself without witness. He constantly blesses mankind, saint and sinner alike, with all his blessings. But just like they were with Jesus, they couldn't be bothered with the miracles. They could care less. They could care less. I wrote this in a paper I did a while back, and I wanted to read it to you. It's in reference to this. I said uh, in this paper, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways than our ways. Our God sits on his throne high and lifted up. When a man reveres him and gives God his rightful place of honor in his heart, that man is also lifted up. But the opposite is true. When a man denies God his proper place in his heart, he descends spiritually and morally even as his heart grows darker and darker. They are gone far from me and have walked in after vanity and have become vain, it says in Jeremiah chapter 2. This pervasive darkness infects his reasoning, and in the blindness of his soul he imagines himself as wise, even while God calls him a fool. Rather than worshiping the glorious creator who made all things, man debases himself by worshiping images of created things, images that are of his own making. This story of idolatry is the story of humanity. Jeremiah proclaims, It is God who made the earth by his power, who established the earth, or the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. By contrast, however, he describes man as, quote, stupid and without knowledge, unquote, that he is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion at the time of his punishment, he shall perish, unquote. Isn't that something? God created man to both know and fellowship with him. This was his intended state. The godless existence is a perversion of this natural order. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, and their ways are vile, and there is no one who does good, Psalm 53.1. The word foolish in the phrase foolish heart of Romans 1.21 can be translated undiscerning, just as a person might find himself unable to recognize objects in the dimming light of evening. So it is for the person who has deprived himself of God's light and is unable to distinguish the distinctions between truth and error were right and wrong. Isn't that something? It says, uh, I have written here, the reason why many, uh, the reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still, still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work within us. And I think that is true for many believers that we have got to get to the point where we give up the fight with God and we allow him to bless us with his glory and stop trying to derive some glory from it. I mean, I, I think of how many wasted years I had as a believer. And, you know, God would be declaring his glory and I kept trying to claim some for my own. <laughs> and it, it's such vanity. Go to John chapter 1. John 1. Many of us are familiar with this verse. John 1, look at verse 14. 
John 1.14. It says, The Word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. God bestowed his glory on Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1. So God's glory. God revealed his glory to Moses. God bestowed his glory on Jesus Christ. How important is Jesus Christ to us? Very important. Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 1. It says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us out by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the, his powerful word. After he has provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became much superior to the angels as the name he had inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today, I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says that all of God's angels worship him. So do you see how God feels about Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the most succinct and, and coherent declaration of his glory to mankind. It's in Jesus Christ. Isn't that fantastic? Verse 7, in speaking of the angel, he, he says, he will make his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The righteousness or unrighteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Isn't that spectacular? I love it. Go to Second Corinthians chapter 3. So Jesus Christ is God's glory presented to mankind, manifested to mankind in spectacular way. And so our relationship with Jesus Christ is of utmost importance. I think of Paul, when Paul says, you know, that I count all these things, these personal things of man's glory, he says, I count them but dung, that I may know him, Christ. Isn't that something? In his being in his righteousness and not my own. Second Corinthians chapter 3, look at verse 5. It says, not that we are competent of our, in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not in the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, in the ministry that brought death, meaning that's talking about the law, in the ministry that brought death, which was engraven in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not steadfastly or could not steadily look at the face of Moses because of its glory fading though it was. Will not the ministry of the spirit be even more glorious? So what this is talking about is when when Moses had gone up and God had passed before him and he had seen the glory of the Lord and then he came down from the mountain. What happened? Remember what I talked about? 
that, that God's glory causes shame and reaction in people who are, you know, in their earthly, you know, existence. And so when when Moses came down from the mountain and they tried to look at him, they they, they couldn't stand it because of the Shekinah glory that shone from Moses. You understand that? That's pretty wild. Let me read that over again because I think it's important. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? And that's the point that Paul is making here. He's saying, look, the Old Testament, which was given to to, to Moses, and it was it was glorious. Remember when he came down from the mountain and everybody was, you know, whoa, that's too much. He says, if that was glorious, think about how much more this period of time in the spirit is even more glorious. It's a surpassing glory. Look in verse nine. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious had no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory, the surpassing glory that is glorious as the law period could have been. This period that we now live in, the beneficiaries of Jesus Christ, the blessed ones, right? The Christians that the period of time that we live in, we are living in surpassing glory. Verse 11. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. That word bold means that we just were plain spoken. We're plain spoken. That when it comes to our faith, we don't feel like we have to, you know, sweeten up the message. The message is about as sweet as it gets. It's about as sweet as it gets. That we just tell people about the glory of the Lord. God doesn't need any help. Verse 13. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds, meaning the minds of the Jews, were made dull. For to this day, that same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away? Even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, what? There is freedom. Does God love freedom? He absolutely does. He absolutely does. He hates all tyranny. All tyranny. Verse 18. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Isn't that awesome? That is just great. We are changing into the Lord, changing into his glory every day. If you stay faithful, if you stay faithful, if you seek the glory of the Lord through Jesus Christ, you will become glorified. We don't have to wait until the end to be glorified, although that's pretty amazing in and of itself. That great hope. Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 22. 
It says this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. Last week we talked about grace. And grace basically is there's nothing that I can derive out of this whole thing that I can boast about, out of this whole process. Man's glory is a sham. It's a sham. And the only thing that really reveals man, man's glory for really what it is, is the magnificence of God's glory, right? It, it says, uh, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And I wanted to finish up here with a quote. This was a quote by Tozer. It said, true spirituality manifests itself in certain dominant desires. These are ever-present, deep-settled wants, sufficiently powerful to motivate and control the life. For convenience, let me number them, though I make no effort to decide the order of their importance. Number one, first, is the desire to be holy rather than happy. The yearning after happiness found so widely among Christians professing a superior degree of sanctity is sufficient proof that such sanctity is not present. The truly spiritual man knows that God will give abundance of joy after we have become able to receive it without injury to our souls. But he does not demand it at once. And I think about, you know, Moses, right? God showed Moses his glory. He didn't show the rest of Israel. It says here, John Wesley said to the members of one of the earliest Methodist societies that he doubted that they had been made perfect in love because they came to church to enjoy religion instead of instead of to learn how that they could become holy. Number two, a man may be considered spiritual when he wants to see the honor of God advance through his life, even if it means that he himself must suffer temporary dishonor or loss. Such a man prays, hallowed be thy name, and silently adds, at any cost to me, Lord. He lives for God's honor by a kind of spiritual reflex. Every choice involving the glory of God is for him already made since it prevents, presents itself. He does not need to debate the matter with his own heart. There is nothing to debate. The glory of God is necessary to him. He gasps for it as a suffocating man gasps for air. That's something. So I think that's that's it. For the believer, his only desire is to glorify God. Let me finish up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just blessing us with this wonderful knowledge. Thank you, Father, that we can go out and live this. That, Father, you can just increase our desire to bring glory to you. And, Father, thank you for giving us opportunity to do it. So I thank you for all these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. In the stillness, I settle my heart in silence, patiently waiting for you, adoring you. In these moments, touched by the hand of mercy, drawn by transforming beauty, I treasure you.
Yes, I 